Amen. It's good to be with you this morning, Castleton. So thankful for Dr. Piotrowski and his wonderful sermon last week. That was a blessing to me. I hope it was to you also. Um, I had a, the opportunity as a result of that to uh, tune in to a pastor's conference. I had hoped to have been, been able to go, have gone in person, but as the Lord would have it, I was going to be doing that over technology, much like we're doing this over technology this morning but I'm very thankful for the opportunity to recharge my batteries and to catch my breath after Easter. So thank you to Dr. Piotrowski. Uh, also, I want to let you know there's an, another opportunity to benefit from Dr. Piotrowski's ministry. Coming up this Wednesday, we're going to have a class called, Is God Still Good? We're living at a time with this coronavirus pandemic when many people are having trouble putting together the two thoughts, that God can be sovereign in, in control and yet also good. Well, Dr. Piotrowski will help us to uh, take a look at what the Bible says about this important topic. Uh, you can tune in at 7 o'clock Wednesday night, the same place you're watching this stream right now. There's also opportunities for you to ask him questions that he'll respond to, um, and there'll be a Zoom chat afterward where you can ask further questions of him. Very thankful for his ministry. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Piotrowski, for your ministry. This morning, uh, one of the things I've been very much looking forward to is beginning a new sermon series through the book of First Kings called Risen to Reign. So our text will come from First Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. First Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This is what scripture says. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king, and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man and was born next after Absalom. He confirmed with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benai, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside En-Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benai, or the mighty men, 
or Solomon, his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin this new series. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the kingly promises it reveals to us. The ways that you have worked throughout the pages of history to bring about the good and prosperity of your people. Thank you for the way you were faithful to place the true King Jesus on the throne. And thank you for the many lessons we have to learn of all the kings that came before him that proved to be unworthy. Would you help us as we study this book, these scriptures you have passed down to us, where we find comfort, instruction, warning, and where we find strength for us to have the sort of enduring faith that your people are called to. We ask these things in the name of our mighty King Jesus. Amen. Growing up, there, was few, there were few places that got my pulse racing as much as blockbuster golf and games. It was an amusement park of sorts about a mile away from my house. It had a big money investor behind it, a gigantic corporate sponsor, Blockbuster Video. It had bumper cars and batting cages and beautiful arcade machines by the dozens. It was a young boy's dream, and it was so much fun. Things started so, so well for this business. I remember the first few weeks it was open, there were lines outside the building. The parking lot, as huge as it seemed, could not hold all the cars that wanted to get into this place. And yet, as well as it started, eventually decline set in. Little by little, the lines got shorter until they disappeared. The parking lot emptied out. The bumper cars stopped bouncing. The batting cages grew silent. And yes, even those arcade machines stopped working. And one day, the wonderful blockbuster golf and games was destroyed about 20 years ago and it was turned into an Ikea of all things. Insult to injury if you ask me. You know, sometimes something great starts so well and ends so poorly, and you're left asking, what happened? How did we end up here? The books of First and Second Kings are written for such an occasion. They're written to a people that are in exile, the Babylonian exile, about 2,500 years ago or so. And they're written to explain how it is that God's people ended up in this predicament and how they can learn from the mistakes of the kings that went before them. It's a book that takes on about a 400-year span that starts with the glory days of the United Kingdoms of Israel and Judah and ends with the people scattered and off in a faraway land in exile. Now, that you may be asking, why should we living so long later, why should we take the time to study such a book? I mean, maybe you're not in, into Bible trivia, so what's the point in learning about all these old kings with hard-to-pronounce names and all the mistakes they made? What good could it possibly have for us as Christians today? 
Well, let me give you four reasons why we should be excited to study these books of First and Second Kings. Four reasons why I am excited to preach through these books and feel that God is leading us to them. First, studying First and Second Kings will help us to grow our biblical palate. It'll help us to grow our biblical palate. You see, the Bible's not just a book full of rules and stories. No, it's the very word of God to us for our benefit, for our instruction, all of it. And that includes across the various different genres within the Bible. See, the Bible's made up of books written by different authors for different purposes at different times. And if you want to be able to be a whole Bible Christian, you have to learn how to read different types of literature that make up the Bible. One of those types of literature that makes up big swaths of the Bible is called historical narrative. It's what First and Second Kings are. It's what First and Second Samuel are, what judges and various other parts throughout the Bible. Without knowing how to deal with plot lines and characters and foreshadowing, without getting the necessary tools in your tool belt, you will be impoverished, unable to benefit yourself fully from the, the full, whole Bible that God intends for you. If we want to be whole Bible Christians, then we need to learn to read this type of literature and there's something for us in it. Second, we should study First and Second Kings because it will amaze us with God's kingly promises. It will amaze us with God's kingly promises. First and Second Kings are a continuation of a story that has been unfolding from the beginning of the Bible. It, very likely the same author wrote Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. It picks up on a, a very central theme to not just these books, but the whole Bible, that Davidic dynasty. One key text to that came in the book right before this, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7, we'll read verses 12 to 17 together. It's a, a central promise to understanding the entire Bible as God gives a promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God speaking to David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That prophet, that uh, prophecy through the lips of the prophet Nathan from God to David will become central to the storyline of 1 Kings. How is God going to fulfill this promise to have a son 
reigning on the throne of his father David forever. We'll watch the promise of the golden years as Solomon rises to reign. We'll see even in his failure how God's promises are not done. We'll watch as there's a parade of kings that come after him following his same pattern of disobedience and decline. And all the while, our appetites will be building for the final king that God would send to sit on the throne of David, King Jesus. We will, as we study the books of First and Second Kings, we will have a greater appreciation for the arrival of King Jesus on the dusty streets of Jerusalem. Third reason, we should study First and Second Kings because it will dazzle us with the glory of worshiping God. It'll dazzle us with the glory of worshiping God. We're, we'll get a front row seat to the construction and building and dedication of the very temple of God under Solomon's reign. We'll see the very way that God's people are called to worship him in this house and the great privilege they have within this. And we'll see how central an abiding, enduring faith is to remaining in God, for God's uh, people to remain in covenant relationship with him. There'll be many lessons for us to learn of worship along the way as we study First and Second Kings. Both the great privilege it is to worship and the great peril of idolatry. Fourth, we should study First and Second Kings because it'll warn us not just to start well, but to finish well. Not just to start well, but to finish well. The first part of our study will take us through the first 11 chapters. That's the first unit. It'll be through the golden age. It's when Solomon rises to reign. But tragically, it's a reign that will not remain. Solomon lacks one thing. For all the many things he has, he lacks the most important of all things. Enduring faithfulness. And his lack of faithfulness in his old age will lead the kingdom down a road of decline that will ultimately lead into exile. This will serve as a warning to all of us as New Testament believers of the need to endure in our faithfulness, to persevere as we follow King Jesus. Oh, there are certainly other reasons we could have for studying this book, but these four are the ones the Lord has laid on my heart as we prepare this study. I hope you are excited for it, and I hope the Lord will speak through his word and show us the glory of the risen King Jesus through this book. We're going to begin in the first 10 verses, as I read just a moment ago, which starts off the rise of Solomon with the introduction of two very, very important characters. Two people that will be instrumental in Solomon's ascent to the throne. The first, in verses 1 through 4, is a portrait of the frigid king and his fading glory. The portrait of a frigid king and his fading glory. That's King David. And second, in verses 5 through 10, we see a portrait of an ambitious prince whose star is rising. An ambitious prince whose star is rising. That's Adonijah. In all of us, we see the beginnings 
of the drama of how God will put his man on the throne of his kingdom for the blessing of his people. Let's begin in verses one through four. The frigid king in his fading glory. It's an apt saying, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Now for that statement to be meaningful, someone has to be mighty in the first place. And David was extremely mighty. King David, think about all that he had accomplished in his lifetime. He who had slew giants. He who had frustrated kings. He who had toppled kingdoms and built up cities. He who had guided God's people into new heights of worship. King David, the mightiest king the earth had ever seen in his day. And yet, King David was not a perfect man, was he? There was that whole Bathsheba incident. There was a minor matter of a census. And yet, we need to acknowledge, even if he wasn't a perfect king, King David was a good king. God's people prospered under him. There's a, 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 almost a summary statement of King David's reign in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 2 to 4. 2 Samuel 23, 2-4. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The poetic description there is the prosperity and blessing that's brought on a people as a good king exercises God-given authority. And by any measure, everyone would say David was a good king. He is going to be the very king that uses the measuring stick for every king that comes after him. And yet, as mighty as King David was, he finally came across a foe he could not defeat. Father Time. We find him in verse 1, and to be frank, David has grown old and cold. His star, though it had once shone so brightly, is now fading. We're told he's old and he's advanced in years. And he's so old, in fact, that he can't even keep himself warm anymore. The royal snuggie and royal warm socks won't do the trick. David is inactive and ineffective as king. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on David. We need to recognize that if we live long enough, all of us will find the same thing happen to us. You can see decline set in in people around you. You can certainly see it happen on a more rapid pace for professional athletes. So right now, there's that Michael Jordan documentary that's going around. I, I remember watching him and his amazing athletic prowess growing up. And for as great of a player as he was, whether you think he's the best of all time or not, we would all acknowledge that there came a point where his jumps weren't quite as high. He wasn't quite so quick. He lost a step until one day he didn't play at all. All of us will find the same thing happen to us at some point if we live long enough. 
This old and cold king, though, becomes the occasion for a desperate, even indecent strategy by his advisors in verses 2 through 4. They decide that David needs essentially a human hot water bottle. If he can't keep warm himself, well, why don't we find a pretty little thing, hold a beauty pageant, find someone that maybe some young blood will get his engine running. Frankly, it's more than a little indecent, what they're suggesting. They think that this young woman should lay in his arms in her body heat will maybe revive the king. Now, the writer goes out of his way to make sure we know nothing happened right there at the end. He knew her not. But the implication is that it's more because of his inability and inactivity than anything else. See, for all the desperation, this engine has grown too cold to be fired up once more. David is a frigid king, and his glory is on the decline. Now, young folks, if you find yourself in the midst of the flower of life. Maybe right now you're not in that zone that's considered to be most risky to be out and about during this pandemic because of youth and health. Maybe right now you have a, a sense that you are doing better physically than most others. There's a word of warning here for all of us. Eventually, all of us will see beauty, strength, and health fade from our, our lives. None of us lives forever. Learn the lesson now, the one that David learned early enough in life, to use your youth to serve the Lord. Then when you grow old and cold, you will not forget him, and he won't forget you. Like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, remember the Lord in your youth. Friends, Trust me, you will not regret it. Now, this frigid king and his fading glory are the occasion for the tension in this story. As is so often the case, when a strong king begins to decline, when someone with strong leadership begins to step back, there's a power vacuum. And there is a question, who will fill it? And that brings us to our second important player in this rise of Solomon to the throne, verses 5 through 10, the ambitious prince whose star is rising, Adonijah. Is in a movie, you might imagine a quick jump cut from frail, cold, and old David to young, bold, and beautiful Adonijah. Adonijah is presented as the polar opposite of David in this moment. He's bold, He's beautiful, he's born to reign, and he even has powerful people by his side telling him so. You can see that he's bold there in verse 5. He exalts himself, literally he lifts himself up and says proudly, I will be king. Not only that, he's matched his boldness and assertiveness with beauty. We're told in verse 6 that he is a very beautiful man. He's a handsome man. Good looks will take you far in this life. And Adonijah had good looks to spare. Not only that, we're told 
He was the next born after Absalom. At the end of verse 6, you might say he was born to rule. I need a little back story on what that meant exactly. There were four sons of David that we know of. The one mentioned Absalom. He was not the firstborn, but he killed the firstborn and then tried to get rid of David in order to get up to the throne a little faster. Absalom ended up losing his life in the process. There was a third son of David that was before Adonijah, but we don't know what happened to him. He just disappears into the text of the Bible. We don't hear any more from him. And all that means that Adonijah, fourth born, is now first in line for the throne. Fourth, he has a whole slew of advisors around him. He has, a, uh, he, he has the powerful that are by his side telling him that he should rule. That's what you see in verse 7. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah, and they helped him. Now, Joab was a powerful military commander. At one point, he was David's highest general. Abiathar is David's old priest. Both of them were closely associated with David, influential people. And yet, for all of this, you get the feeling that there's a flip side to this very shiny coin. That maybe all of these reasons that Adonijah should rule aren't what they appear on the surface. Maybe his boldness is really just a mask for pride. I mean, that doesn't sound very promising that he exalts himself. Doesn't God oppose the proud? Doesn't he give grace to the lowly? And maybe that's tied to the fact that we're told in verse 6 that David, his father, never at any time displeased him by asking, what have you done thus and so? David never told him no along the way. Could it be that Adonijah is really just a prideful prince? Thinks that he has the right to rule because of selfish ambition? Or what about his beauty? Could it be that it's a superficial sort of beauty? Now, we only get a brief snapshot of him in the pages of First Kings. But frankly, what we see is not pretty. If we remember what First and Second Samuel told us, one of the things that was great about David was that he was beautiful on the inside. That God doesn't look at outward appearances the way man does. And even that son of David that tried to kill him and take his throne, Absalom, he was noted the exact same way as Adonijah, as someone that was very handsome. Could it be that his beauty is only skin deep? Or what about birth order? I mean, sure, he is now the oldest son of David left alive, but is that really the way that kings in Israel were supposed to be raised up? I mean, both Saul and David, the only two kings before then, they, they were both raised up not because they were firstborn. They were raised up because a prophet came and said, this is God's man for the throne. Could it be that Adonijah's self-appointment is less than determinative? Is he really the consensus pick of those with authority? 
oh sure, he does have a priest. He does have a general. He certainly has lots of royal hangers on behind him. But he does not have the prophet, the priest, and the king's blessing. Nathan, the prophet, we're told he is expressly not consulted. The same thing for the head of David's personal army, his, his, uh, his mighty men, and then uh, his, his uh, current general, Ben-Ai. Th- those men have not given uh, their blessing to Adonijah. And then most of all, there's no reference here to King David himself identifying Adonijah as the one who should rule. All of this is making it sound less like Adonijah should be ready for a coronation and more like he is setting up for a coup. And that's exactly what it looks like happens in verses 9 through 10. He sets up a slithering sort of setup a celebration designed to cement himself as king in an underhanded sort of way. He, he goes off to a place called the Serpent's Stone. We don't know much about it, but it certainly sounds ominous. The most important thing is it's out of sight and therefore out of the reach of those with actual authority. He invites his brothers. He invites those people that are behind him. But look at the list of people he makes sure not to invite. Nathan, the prophet, Benai, the loyal soldier to David, and then last and most important of all, Solomon, his brother. This is the foreshadowing of the conflict that the rest of the chapter will tease out that we will see next week. Solomon, the one who God has chosen to be king, he is excluded from this supposed coronation because this is actually a coup. What we see here is a portrait of an ambitious man ready to seize a throne as he senses weakness to the one who's not quite dead and yet still sits on it. Our narrative ends with the kingdom at a perilous point. It's as if it's sitting on the edge of a knife. Just to push one direction or the other and ruin could result. What would result of God's promises? How will God get his king on the throne? What will happen to God's people? Well, before we get to that next week, we need to avail ourselves of what we have already read and ask ourselves, what does it matter for us today? What does it matter for a New Testament Christian? What we've seen of these two portraits these two players in the rise of Solomon to reign. Let me give you three sets of applications. First, realize that even your best spiritual heroes in this world, even the mightiest spiritual heroes, will be flawed. We see the example of David after his glory has been leaving him for some time. He has grown old and cold. We also see his failure as a father. Practically one of the most important reasons for this whole mess is his unwillingness to rebuke his princely son. Now it's tempting when you see flaws in someone you've looked up to, to to just go to one extreme and throw everything good they've done out along with it. 
to say they've messed up in this area of their life? Well, that must mean I've disregarded all the other good they've done in other areas. But friends, remember, every person, every person that walks this earth, every brother or sister in Christ, everyone but the Lord Jesus himself, if you look closely enough, you will see flaws. And I would even venture to say you will see significant flaws in their character. They may not be obvious at first, but don't live under the lie that someone you look up to is perfect. It'll only set you up for disappointment. And when they do disappoint you, when you do, when you are forced to deal with their flaws, friend, would, would you remember the good things that God has done through them? A godly aunt or uncle the things they taught you about the Bible are still true, even if they have disappointed you. A faithful pastor who over time is forced to leave the ministry. The truths from God's word that they have heralded, they are still true and they were still for your benefit. A mentor, a discipler, someone that showed you what it means to be a Christian. Even if they lose their way, it doesn't mean God didn't use them to help you find your way to follow Christ. Remember, even spiritual heroes like David have flaws. Second, beware, beware of your impulse to crown yourself. All of us have the impulse to crown ourselves. Maybe not on the throne of Israel, but certainly on the throne of our own lives. Now, we live at a time where we are told so many different times in so many different ways that what we think of ourselves matters most. That our dreams, our ambitions, our self-assessment is the thing that is most determinative of how our life will go. That we just need to be true to ourselves and all will be well. But friend, realize that's really a recipe for disaster. Adonijah was following his dream. Adonijah was not letting anyone tell him no. Adonijah deep down knew he was born to do this and it led to his ruin. No, true wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. With acknowledgement that he is king. And that any authority that we may have, even right authority, is derivative. It's given from him and to be stewarded by us. Ask yourselves this question. What matters more to you? Your own assessment of yourself or God's assessment of you? Ask yourself this question. How would you know if your dream is really what God wants for you? All of us need to learn to humble ourselves if we hope for God to lift us up at the right time. Now, there's much to be said about rightly using authority that God does entrust us with. It it's no, does us no good to sit back and pretend that in humility we'll never exercise any sort of authority because of pride. No, when God entrusts someone with a throne, a position of leadership in government, a role as a parent, all of these stations in life, there is a responsibility to use that authority well. You know, 
David did sit on the throne of Israel and he did have many responsibilities and, and his failure to use his authority to rebuke his son Adonijah led to great, great difficulty. And that means, parents, you have a balance you need to make. At one level, you should not be lording your authority over your kids. And yet at another level, you can't let them lord over you. God has put you in their life to tell them no. To tell them no early, to tell them no often, to tell them no lovingly because no one else has the role you do. To correct harms even when they are in their seed form before they have had time to sprout. I remember hearing the, the tragic story of a parent who had taken up the philosophy that they would never tell their child no. They'd had a, a poor experience with being overly authoritarian with the first child, and so when the second child came along, they said they were going to avoid that mistake. They would never tell the child no. They would only use positive reinforcement. Well, about seven or eight years in, the parade of counselors that had exited the room tipped them off that this had not been a good strategy. Parents realize you must, you must, you must learn to tell your children no, but you must do so for their good and out of fear of the God that has entrusted you with this authority. And realize also, kids, that you need to realize what a blessing it is to have parents, Christian parents, that will actually shield you from the worst ideas that will pop into your head. It's amazing how this pattern plays out over and over again in Christian houses down through the generations. Teenagers think that their parents know absolutely nothing, that all they're doing is ruining their fun by telling them no, they can't do this, they can't do that. And then those teenagers grow up and the older they get, the more they are thankful for the things their parents protected them from. Now, you may grow up and disagree with many things that your parents do in your life, students. But realize what a tremendous blessing you have. To have someone whose job, as given by God, is to disciple you. And yes, even to tell you no as you grow. Parents, I know this is a difficult time when it comes to parenting. Would you not shrink back from your responsibility even as you're around your kids more than ever. Uh, Dr. Phil Riken says that this is the most important parenting principle in the entire Bible. And as a pastor that gets to see the wreckage of when this is not done well, I tend to agree with him. Would you learn that balance? Not to lord over them, but not to let them lord over you either. To use your God-given authority for their good. All of us need to ask ourselves the question, whose opinion matters most? My own or God's? And really that question gets to the heart of the matter because it gets to the question of who is really on the throne of your life. Maybe you're tuning in this morning and you're just checking out Christianity. That may very, sound very strange to you, that we would mistrust even our own dreams and desires, that we would actually desire to be corrected and think that that is something good that God provides for us. 
I understand that could be a confusing thing, but please understand that central to the biblical message is that on our own, our hearts actually deceive us, that they are deceptive and wicked, and that we are blinded to our worst instincts again and again. The Bible calls this tendency sin. It tells us that in our sin, we rebel against the God who is king over us all. And if left unchecked, that rebellion would lead to our doom. But the good news is the God that is Lord over us, the true king of heaven, has made a way for rebellious, even blinded sinners to find their way back to him. He sent his son, Jesus, to come to this earth, to give his life in the place of rebels, to die on a cross as a substitute for our sins. And he did that so that we could come back under his right rule. That Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father. He is the true king of the world. And friend, he offers you more than just a restart in your life. More than just a reset button. He offers you a new life. His perfect life in exchange for yours. If you'll just trust him. If you'll open yourself to his rule. And if you'll bow before his reign. If you have questions about how it is that you can do that. You can email us or call the church. I'd love to have a conversation with you. And tell you how you can meet King Jesus yourself. There's a third line of application here for us. One that we'll come back to again and again through this study. It's don't let the drama of history, God's history, discourage you. Don't let the drama of God's history discourage you. This was undoubtedly a tense time in the kingdom of God. The kingdom hung on the edge of a knife. Just one perilous move and God's people would be imperiled. How could God possibly turn this situation for the prosperity and good of his people? We live at a time that is uncertain and many of us struggle to see how God is working for our good. So let's remember. Let's remember God's unfolding drama in history. Let's remember that the right man ended up on the throne. Let's remember that God was faithful to raise up the right son to sit on the throne of David. Let's remember that his rule was just and that God's people will prosper under that rule. Let's remember how he led them into joyful and true worship of God like no one else can. Let's remember how even the nations gathered and saw the glory of God as a result. Now, of course, I'm not just talking about King Solomon now, am I? Let's remember how God has raised up the true king, King Jesus. And let's remember the story. For all the drama that precedes it, let's remember it ends with King Jesus on the throne. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are a good king. Thank you for the way your word. Thank you for the way it never grows old. Thank you for how 
even if the grass and the flower may wither or fade, that your word endures forever and it always has something to say to us. As we study these books of First and Second Kings in the months ahead, Jesus, would you enlarge in our vision of how much we need a good king? And would you give us greater joy as we worship you? the king that came and fulfilled every one of your father's promises. Will you help us this week? Will you help us to notice where we have set ourselves up to sit on the throne of our lives? Would you help us to be lowly and humble so that you might exalt us at the right time? Would you give us a vision of our security under your reign. And with this week, the fact that you are on the throne, would that be the balm in this uncertain time? We worship you. We give all the glory to you, Lord Jesus, because it's rightfully yours. We pray in your name. Amen.